0: So what is a biblical worldview? Well, before we get in the nitty-gritty of that question, uh, which will be our, our night this evening, I, I first want us to ask the question, what is a worldview? Right? Before we even get to a biblical worldview, what is a worldview? Uh, when I was a freshman in college, <laughs> I, I, it was my first semester, and I was in general education, so my, my liberty boy right here, right? G-N-E-D, do they still do G-N-E-D? Gen Ed? Yeah, okay, well, it was called G-N-E-D. it's called G-N-E-Ds. Back when the cool kids were there. And, um, and we had GND 101, GND 102. And this the, the fall and spring semester. And so it's my first semester. And the question comes up. It's like 100 people in this classroom. And the, the, the uh, professor, Dr. Wider, I don't know if he's still there, goes, all right, we're going to go around the entire room. Everybody's going to stand and give an answer. What is your worldview? I had never heard the term worldview in my entire life. Cell phones had just kind of come out. And uh, yes, I am in my 30s now. And so I remember sitting like in the back of the room, grabbing my phone. I dialed my mom while they started on that side. And I went, mom, what's my worldview? (laughs) Right? Because I had no idea what my professor was talking about. And here I am actually 13 years later. And uh, yeah, this is the 13th year later. And um, it's a big part of what I do and what I discuss and and things like that. So I'm, I'm grateful for that. But what is a worldview? Everybody has a worldview. Every single person sees the world through a specific lens and has convictions and desires and makes decisions based on the way that they see the world and meaning and what is right and wrong and purpose and things like that. So I want to look at a helpful definition That um, will help us when we talk about what a worldview is tonight. This comes from James Anderson. He's involved with Ligonier Ministries, which, of course, is where the late R.C. Sproul uh, was and began that ministry. Powerful uh, ministry and wonderful people there. And and James says this about a worldview As the word itself suggests, a worldview is an overall view of the world, it's not a physical view of the world, but rather a philosophical view. An all-encompassing perspective on everything that exists and matters to us. A person's worldview represents his most fundamental beliefs and assumptions about the universe he or she inhabits. It reflects how he would answer all the big questions of human existence. Fundamental questions about who and what we are, where we came from, why we're here, where, if anywhere, that we're headed. It talks about the meaning and purpose of life, the nature of the afterlife, and what counts as a good life here and now. Worldviews shape and inform our experiences of the world around us. Like spectacles with colored lenses, they affect what we see and how we see it, and depending on the color of our lenses or our worldview, some things may be seen more easily than others, and conversely... They may be de-emphasized or distorted. Indeed, some things may not even be seen at all, depending on the glasses we are wearing. Worldviews also largely determine people's opinions on matters of ethics and politics. What a person thinks about abortion or euthanasia, same-sex relationships, environmental ethics, economic policy, public education, and so on, will all depend on his underlying worldview more than anything else. As such, worldviews play a central and defining role in our lives. They shape what we believe and what we're willing to believe. They shape how we interpret our experiences how we behave in response to those experiences, and how we relate to others. Our thoughts and our actions are conditioned by our worldviews. Now, knowing that and hearing that kind of a definition, I think we could all agree, it would be pretty important, therefore, to have a biblical worldview. Would you agree? And we talked about last semester, the end of the evening, about the sufficiency of Scripture. We showed in Scripture that all of life, has answers and wisdom to be sought after in the word of God. There is nothing in the word of God that does not affect and impact every single molecule of our being and our life. So that being said, now I want to give you just a brief overview of the worldviews that we are in combat with. Because if you don't have a biblical worldview, as I mentioned, you have some kind of a worldview. So I want to give you the main worldviews really briefly with a wicked brief definition of what that means, okay? One of the main worldviews is what we call naturalism. Naturalism believes there is no God. That humans are just highly evolved animals. And the universe is a closed physical system. This really took off with Darwinism. Uh, Before Darwin, by the way, atheists really had no argument and were considered to kind of be, uh, I don't mean this derogatory, although... Just fact, they were actually considered to be relatively stupid because they couldn't answer why we're here, where we came from. Darwin's theory of evolution changed that for a naturalist uh, worldview. Next, you have postmodernism, which, by the way, is actually on its way out. Postmodernism is that there are no objective truths, there are no objective moral standards, that reality is ultimately a, ho- a human social construction. So Andrew could look at this wall and say, it's brick. And the reality is, is that's brick. That is just truth. But then Herb could go, that's not brick, that's cement. And Andrew could be like, Herb, you're an idiot. It's brick. And Herb could be like, Andrew, you're an idiot. It's cement. And they could go back and forth. And postmodernism would say, you're both right. (laughs) Which is just ludicrous. I'll tell you what's kind of been replacing postmodernism here in a little bit. Then you have pantheism. Which means that God is the total, totality of reality. That we are all divine by nature. We are all a God. We can all be a God. This thought of transcendence of knowledge. Then you have pluralism. That all the world religions are equally valid perspectives on the ultimate reality. And all of them are valid paths to salvation. A pluralist worldview. Then you have Islam, which is indeed uh, a worldview. There is only one God Islam believes. He has no son. And by the way, this right here means it's not the same God as Christians. They will often talk to Christians. I, I actually talk with Muslims quite often, and I have a good relationship with a number of them. But I always correct them in love. We have a good friendship. They know I I care for them. And I say... We don't worship the same God. We don't. You don't believe that Jesus is the Son of God. You, you just end a discussion. You don't believe in the Trinity. It doesn't make any sense to you. So I get that we have similar roots and that, you know, you believe I've distorted it. I believe you distorted it. But we do not worship the same God. Islam believes that God has revealed his will for all people through his final prophet, Muhammad, and through his eternal word, which is the Quran. And then you have one of the. Biggest ones today, Mike has talked about this a number of times on Sunday morning, and this is kind of where postmodernism is branching into this, and it's moralistic, therapeutic deism. It's that, well, deism is that there is a God, but he's kind of hands off with the universe, right? So he's not in control of all things. So when you would look at like a natural disaster, like a tsunami or something, in 2004 in Indonesia, and it affected over 13 countries, all that kind of stuff, a deist worldview would say, oh yeah, there's a God, but he couldn't do anything about it. Either he had no power of the tsunami, or he didn't know what was going to happen. And of course, we know according to the word of God that that's foolishness. We reject deism. Well, moralistic, therapeutic deism is not only that God is hands off for the most part, but also that God just wants us to be... Happy, whatever that means to us. He just wants us to be nice to other people, and he only intervenes in affairs when we call on him to help us out. And so, really, moralistic therapeutic deism is one that takes an objective truth mentality of postmodernism and makes everything all about you. It brings a little more accountability, but really your best life comes now, and just whatever makes you happy, JJ, that's cool. So this is what we're up against. These are the majority of the worldviews today. So now the question is, what is a biblical worldview? All right, let's answer the question. What is a biblical worldview? Since we reject those things, what do we believe? Well, this is a biblical worldview. A biblical worldview is an understanding. And and just so you know, before um, I see a lot of you have pens, that's cool. One of the things that we discussed in our leaders meeting last week, too, is that at the end of each week, what would help is if I gave you all a piece of paper to go home with. That highlights my main points, has a couple main definitions, and, you, and has also all the scripture that I use. And so every one of you will get to leave um, with one of these tonight, just so you can kind of have it for notes. They're not exhaustive, but I will let you know when I'm going to say things that happen to be here. So this is actually a long definition that I wrote of a biblical worldview. So rather than trying to cramp your hand as fast as you can, you'll actually get that definition in tonight's handout. Hand okay? Sweet. You're welcome, all you... All right, what is a biblical worldview? A biblical worldview is an understanding that there is one God, Yahweh, who created all things, rules over all things, is sovereign over all things, and he's actively involved in all things. It understands that our creator alone has determined what is right and wrong. It understands that all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and that Jesus is the only way, the only truth, and the only life, that no man comes to the Father but through Him. A biblical worldview understands that the Bible is God's Word, infallible and errant, and it's given to us for reproof, rebuke, correction, training in righteousness, that the man of God may be what? Complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. And that in Christ we've been granted all things, Peter says, that pertain to life and godliness. We believe, therefore, that a Christian sees life differently than those who are not born again. We believe that Christians have a great hope for the future, indeed the only hope of the future. We believe that we seek to glorify God in all things, even things as simple as eating and drinking, as First Corinthians ten thirty one says in Romans fourteen. We believe that we ought to see all of life through the lens of the Word of God in the context of the great gospel plan of Christ and with an eternal mindset. We also believe that a biblical worldview, here we go, requires us to be obedient to Jesus' command to make disciples. In other words, all of our knowledge must move into action. This means that we go out into our culture and we go out into our world and we expose the deeds of darkness, that we correct our opponents with gentleness, speaking the truth in love, praying that God would open eyes of men and women and that they would come to their senses, as Paul says to Timothy, and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. That's a biblical worldview. I also want to remind you at this point what our goal for the year is. Our goal for the year is we want to see people transformed by the Spirit of God through the Word of God, and actively transforming the world for the glory of God. Now here's the reality. Ready? Now we get in the nitty-gritty of tonight. Many Christians believe in the facts of a biblical worldview. Most Christians would read or hear what I just said and say, yeah, I've got a biblical worldview. Definitely. I affirm that. I check all those boxes. In fact, not only that, but I go to Sunday school, not just service. (laughs) But the problem is this, mostly all Christians would affirm these facts, but few Christians actually live this out. See, a lot of Christians affirm the facts of a biblical worldview, but they live and act and think in a secular worldview. The challenge for us this semester is to not live in contradiction or hypocrisy, If you followed along last semester, you'll remember that we covered much of what it means to have a confident faith in Christ and in His Word. But now, moving forward, we address the issue of this. Here's what faith demands of a born-again person. Here's what faith produces in the life, in the mind, in the actions of a born-again person. In other words, the biblical worldview is simply putting into practice our theology of the sufficiency of Scripture in all of life. So to do this tonight, we are going to discuss four things about a biblical worldview that will be the foundation for our semester, okay? Four things. Here we go. Number one, a true biblical, in fact, I think it's back there if you want to help me. Thanks. Uh, Thank you, Heather. A true biblical worldview demands that we abide in the word. Let's read this together. A biblical worldview demands that we abide in the word. It's like the most cliche thing ever. <laughs> if you want to have a biblical world, if you want to grow in your faith, if you want to overcome doubt and fear and worry, get in the word, get in the word, abide in the word, abide in the word. I mean, literally, you, most of you who have grown up in church have probably heard this hundreds of times. And if you've listened to any of my preaching for the last number of years, you've heard me speak excessively on this. But it cannot be overlooked because the reality is this. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand. But I would bet my entire savings account, which is going to be buying diapers for my daughter, that the majority of you in here, over 50%, probably spend less than one hour a week on your own in the Word of God. That would be my bet of my entire savings account. In other words, we probably, if we're honest, have a room full of people who affirm all the truths that I just said, but in practice... Live life in a totally different compartment. Paul David Tripp speaks briefly on worldview in his book called Awe. When he's just discussing how the foundation of all things is having this awe for the glory of God. And when he says about worldview, what happens is Christians do this. They have two uh, drawers. One is life. In the essence uh, of their home, and their their job, and their finances, and their work, and their friendships, and their hobby. And and they make all decisions, and all this affects all the others. And then they kind of close that drawer, and it's time to open the next drawer. And the next drawer is what? Their spiritual life. And so their spiritual life is totally separate from their regular life. And, And this is really what we have. We have most Christians who think... And affirm these theological truths, but they don't abide in the word. And what I'm telling you tonight is the reason that the world thinks that Christians are a bunch of hypocrites is because Christians are a bunch of hypocrites. We contradict ourselves. We'll wave the Bible and say, homosexuality is wrong. And then we will go indulge in all kinds of sinful activities, things that are not good for us, that are not healthy. Or we'll abuse things that are good for us because we'll indulge beyond what is appropriate for us to indulge in them. And we contradict ourselves. And we hold on to these big affirmations that typically you find in Christian Baptist churches of things that we speak out against, but don't kind of touch the comfort of my life. Look, those issues are in my bottom drawer, the spiritual life. Don't start trying to get the bottom drawer mixed in with all my undies and socks in the top drawer. This is the problem. So when I look at this, number one, a biblical worldview demands that we abide in the Word, we can't overlook it tonight. You've, you've all got to be able to look at yourself in the mirror and say, do I have a biblical worldview that is totally dependent upon me being in the Word, meditating day and night, abiding in Christ and in God? You see the seriousness of this and the truth of this in a number of places in Scripture. Romans ten seventeen: faith comes from hearing and hearing from what? The word of Christ. How about John chapter 15 verse 5? Abide in me and I in you and you will bear much fruit. If you do not abide in me, you can do nothing. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Uh, Jesus says in in John chapter 15 verse 5. How about Psalm chapter 1? Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates one hour a week. No, day and night. Psalm 19, it revives the soul. Is more to be desired than gold, fine gold, sweeter than honey that drips off the honeycomb. Psalm 119, 176 verses where all of them, except about a dozen, proclaim all that the Word of God does for their life, every aspect of their life. The Bible's not quiet that the man who is blessed and keeping in set with the Spirit is the man who is abiding and meditating on the Word of God day and night. So, we have got to be people of the Word. If we are going to have a biblical worldview, we must know the Word of God. How can we view the world through the Word if we don't know the Word and don't spend time in the Word, right? So, here's, here's an even a step further with this. Because we mentioned that everybody has a worldview. Well, did you know that everyone is being discipled as well? And they're not all being discipled by Christ or the Word of God or men and women of God. I want to, I, I, I've said this before, and many, some of you have heard this, some of you have not, and this is not a bashing of public school system. Don't worry, I'm going to get to kind of an approach to that here in a second. Nor is tonight a discussion on a, a biblical worldview of education. I just want to drop some facts for you, just so you know, by the way. So the public school system, Amy, if Amy goes, I'll use me, because I did. I went to public school from kindergarten all the way through 12th grade. I did, and I turned out just fine. Kind God's grace. Thank you, Lord. And um, kindergarten through 12th grade. I spent 12 years in public school. And I tallied up. I did the math. Take away my extracurricular activities. Take away my hobbies. And only during the school year, between kindergarten and 12th grade, if you know the answer, don't answer it. How many hours, just basis of education, how many hours do you think I spent being discipled by the public school system, which, by the way, has a naturalist, deist, Moralistic, therapeutic, deist uh, worldview. How many hours do you think I spent being discipled by the public school system? Give me a guess. How many? Whew, that's high. That That's probably true for people who did a lot of extracurricular activities. The answer is just school hours, 12,000 hours. 12,000 hours minimum being trained by the public school system. Now, take the same kid... The same kid who goes to uh, church for Sunday school and for church and does like, let's say, an Awana program for an hour a week. So you've got maybe three hours worth of church discipleship a week. Those same amount of years, it's less than 3,000 hours of discipleship. So now pause for a second. When parents think that the church is there to disciple their kids and they're relying on the church alone to disciple their kids, what you have is a gap of over 9,000 hours. Not even including extracurricular activities, Activities and and hobbies and things of the like. You can see now why a mom and a dad who don't institute family worship or godly biblical disciplines in the home. Or teach their kids how to love the Lord, their God with all their heart and soul, mind and strength. Or aren't reading and praying together in the home. Kids who aren't having quiet times. You might now see why when they graduate from high school they don't come back to the church. They, They haven't been discipled by the church. They've been discipled by culture. And so this just shows us that discipleship and abiding in the word of God is serious because we live in a world where entertainment and education and the workforce and friendships and where we buy our groceries and where we buy our clothes are all trying to disciple us into consumers, materialists, people who reject uh, God's standards of right and wrong. We are indeed being discipled. Now, I'm not talking about entertainment tonight either. Actually, Brother Rudy's going to be discussing our first topic next week on entertainment. And we thought that that was really appropriate, number one, because he had a, uh, it was one of the things that stuck out to him. Number two, the last thing that you guys need to hear from me is me talk about your Netflix habits and your gaming habits and your phone habits anymore we discussed. So, to hear that from a different voice and a man much more wise and mature than me will be a good thing. However, there is one thing I want to point out about tonight and Rudy can probably give you better stuff next week. For young adults, the average American spends eighty hours a week being entertained. Young adult studies show that young adult or studies today show that young adults, the average young adult in America spends five hours a day on its phone. If he or she is a gamer, a minimum of two hours a day. If they have a television or Netflix account, five hours a day for the average young adult American. Now, this may not be you, right? That's fine. But for the average American, it is. 80 hours of entertainment. The number one thing I hear from people who say, I'm struggling with my quiet time. And I say, well, what's happening? I just don't have any time. You liar. You know, I don't say that, you know, I'm mean? like, oh okay, well talk me about your schedule, let's see if we can figure some things out. The reality is is that's like the biggest lie you can possibly imagine. All right? In fact, what you can do is you can pull out your phone, I don't have me on me or on me right now, and if you have an iPhone, you can go to settings, battery, you can click the last 7 days, click the clock and it'll show you how much time you've spent on Facebook, Instagram, those stupid games that you have on your phone, and you can look and say, "Wow, I've spent 22 hours on Facebook the last 7 days. Maybe I do have time." Right? What it is is an affection. Issue. This is what we've discussed. We discussed this uh, a number of weeks ago too with 2 Corinthians chapter 6. The biggest uh, enemy of our faith in our time with the Lord is not culture, is not the government, is not Satan himself. It's the fact that you are a sinful person who craves immediate gratification and is blind to the realities of the glory of God that he gives us in all things in the context of his boundaries. That our greatest joy is found in obedience to Christ. So here's, I bring this up that a biblical worldview demands that we abide in the word because of this. Here's the consequences if we try to implement or execute a biblical worldview apart from abiding in the word. Take the same child who grows up into a young adult with these kind of habits and this kind of difference in discipleship, his entire upbringing. And now he wants to discuss his biblical worldview and expose the deeds of darkness and preach the gospel. But this child has no consistent time with the Lord. This person prays when it's convenient, reads every now and then, is spending hours upon hours in entertainment and world activities. What happens when this person tries to communicate and execute the demands and commands of the word without the fruit of the Spirit that only comes from a person who is dwelling and keeping in step with the Spirit? This person will be quick to anger. This person will watch Fox News and feel like they're about to have a heart attack. This person will worry. This person will fear and have anxiety issues. This person will be quick to be harsh and raise his or her voice. This person will be unloving. This person will be prideful. This person will give up easy. This person will lack the true confidence that we need which only comes from Christ. Why? Because he's not abiding in the Word. He's pulling from a well that is totally full of of a naturalist, deist, moralistic, therapeutic worldview. He's not pulling from verses that he just read this morning and the peace of God that is surpassing all understanding. He's not pulling from a wealth and love and joy that he finds in Christ. No, he's trying to take these facts of theology that he knows and apply it to the chaos of the world. And it makes Christianity look foolish. A true biblical worldview begins with a disciple of Christ finding his greatest joy in Christ and in his word. Listen to me tonight. Please. Enough with your excuses and your laziness. Frankly, I'm serious. Especially young adults coming up who are going to be the influence. You've got to grow up. You've got to be serious about responsibility and taking care of your families. And men taking care of your wives. And boyfriends, being prepared to take care of a wife. Or people, being prepared to start taking care of your kids. There's no excuse. Look, I don't mean to be in your face. Listen to me. There's no excuse for being lazy. There's no excuse for making a bunch of excuses of why you can't be a man or a woman of God who loves the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And, if you want to make excuses, call it what it is and say you're not a man of God and you don't delight in God. And then all of a sudden we can pray a different prayer. God, save this person. Open your eyes and reveal the glory of God to this person that so they can be captivated by you. There's I'm not trying to guilt or shame you. I'm trying to kind of get rid of the wimpy mentality that is, you know, totally over, overwhelming churches across the nation of people who just want to be spiritual and praise God and thank Him, and they walk out of church and they never open up their Bibles. They don't fast. They don't pray. They don't sharpen one another. They don't talk about the gospel. They don't expose the deeds of darkness. The last time they told somebody about Christ was in a Sunday school class practicing ten years ago. It's ridiculous. It really is ridiculous. If you're going to have a biblical worldview, look yourself in the mirror and say, Dear God, you've got to give me a desire to be a man of God who loves you more than anything, abides in you, and because of that, what you doing in my life, it transformed me into loving other people. The reason I can be angry about it is because that was me. Worse than you, probably. You want to know why worse than you? I was a pastor. The church was paying me for six years to be that person. And I had a crumbling meltdown where God humbled me in New Jersey. And my life was changed because of God's grace. And I had to stop making excuses. And I had to stop being lazy. And I had to realize the world didn't revolve around Dave Aubrey. Number two. A true biblical worldview demands that our minds are being renewed by the word. It means nothing to spend hours upon hours upon hours reading the word of God and gaining a bunch of knowledge if it doesn't change a single thing in your mind. Number one leads to number two, and it should be. You see, because we are growing up in a secular world where man is autonomous and morality is subjective, God may or may not be there. If he is, he's unengaged. He only comes to us when we need something. Because of these things that flood our homes, our workplaces, and our communities, we as Christians need renewed minds. Remember, the culture is not the boogeyman. (laughs) We're born in flesh, sinful flesh. We're born in total depravity. We're hostile to God. We're not seeking after God. So when a person is born again, sanctification begins. And sanctification is first and foremost an act of renewing your mind. That's what repentance is. It's not just a change in this action. We've discussed this a number of times. It's a changing in the way you think. People can deceive people and themselves all the time by changing their actions, but they think the same thing about life and sin and indulgences. What you need is a renewed mind. A renewed mind will automatically change your actions. But if you try to change actions, that doesn't mean that you're going to have a changed mind. Romans chapter 12, verse 2. Do not be conformed to this world. How do we do that? How do we not be conformed to the world? By being transformed by the renewing of your mind. That by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So Paul tells us in Romans 12, the number one way that you are distinct from the world You have a renewed mind. You think differently. You see differently. Perfect example. How many times in Scripture does it talk about rejoicing in our suffering? Uh, Think about Hebrews ten. Joyfully accept the plundering of your property, Sarah. Somebody, you go home tonight, and your entire house is flipped upside down. They've taken all your money. They've taken your beautiful dog. All your clothes, and you have nothing. And the Bible says, joyfully accept the plundering of your property because you have a better possession and abiding one. The world goes, you're insane. You think differently. We've talked about it before. Repentance. Changing the way we think. Changing the way we think. We see the same thing in Romans chapter 8, verse 5 through 8. Pastor mentioned it this last weekend as well. Those who live according to the flesh set their minds on what? The things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on what? The things of the Spirit. To set the mind on flesh is what? Death to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. We see here again, the focus is not on the actions. The focus is on the mind. As believers, we must not fall back into sin by thinking in the flesh. If you remember back to last semester, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, we looked at verses 3 through 6. We looked at the whole chapter, but verses 3 through 6 says, If our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, those who are perishing, those who are non-regenerate, those who are not believers, in their case, the God of this world has what? Blinded the what, Mike? The minds of the unbelievers. To keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. And then it says, but Jesus, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And the end of 2 Corinthians 3 says, but we all with unveiled face. You see, the difference is in the thinking and the mind which affects the way we see. Believers see differently than the world. This is regeneration. And it starts... And giving us a new heart and renewing our minds. When we are born again, our minds change, our thinking changes, and therefore the way that we see everything changes. The way that you see the smallest part of your budget changes. The way that you see going out to get your mail changes. The way you deal with patience when someone's being an idiot in the grocery line changes. The way you deal with prices of gas. Changes. The way that you deal with the person on the road who's driving like a maniac changes. The way you see all of life changes. This is how we engage with conversations with lost people as well. Because this is indeed the problem with lost people. They're blind. They don't have a mind that is submissive to God. Their minds are submissive to the flesh. They don't have the ability to think right. Listen to me. We should all say this when dealing with lost people. They don't have the ability to think right. At the end of the day, I preach the gospel. I hope that God uses these seeds being scattered to land on good soil and open their eyes. But what do I expect? I once was that person too. And I didn't get to where I am today because I was better than this person who's blind. I got here by the grace of God. This is what Paul tells Timothy in his final letter in 2 Timothy chapter 2. He tells Timothy to correct his opponents with what? Gentleness. Just like in Ephesians when he says to speak the truth in love. And then he shows us that the work of conversion is the work of God. Paul says to Timothy, God may perhaps grant them repentance. Leading to what? What does the repentance lead to? A knowledge of the truth, Paul says, an understanding, a new way of thinking. They're blind. They have no knowledge of the truth. And he continues and says that they may come to their senses, think clearly, see clearly, feel clearly. What are senses? I can smell, I can see, I can touch, I can hear. They may come to their senses. This new life where they all of their senses are now different. I hear different, I see different, I smell different, I look different, I touch different. Everything changes when you are born again. This is a worldview. We as believers must realize that one of the most important reasons that we ought to abide in God's Word is so that we can continually have our minds renewed as part of our sanctification. In other words, if some of you are struggling with maybe a dry season or a dead season in the Word of God, and you're struggling and you don't feel like you're understanding things or it's really having any impact, check your motives when you go to the Word of God. In other words, start off praying this, Lord, I will have the tendency to want to know more so I can tell my friends and be thought of good. I have a tendency to want to have something amazing and then I can write a Facebook post about what you just did in my life. I might have a tendency to want to read something and go, oh, that is definitely Mike Childers' problem. I'm going to text him a verse that I'm praying for him right now because, boy, sure is gossiping, Right? You might read the word of God because you want some awesome illustration. Or you might have something that's consuming your mind and you feel like you can't move on with life because there's this idol that's bursting up. You need an answer and it's becoming unhealthy. And so you're going, God, I'm looking for words to jump off the page to give me a specific sign right now. And all of these motives of why you go into the word of God are impure if it's not first and foremost, Lord, I just want to know you. I just want you to set me apart. I just want you to sanctify me. Because as I'm approaching your word this morning, this afternoon, this evening, I'm confessing I'm a sinful, fleshly person. And Lord, I've sinned a lot in the last day. And I just want to be renewed and different. I want to think different. So God, if nothing else, if I don't get an answer, if I don't get an encouraging word, if I don't get an awesome illustration that I never knew, will you just work on my mind? Give me a deeper understanding of you and change me to be conformed to the image of Christ? This is what Paul says. Colossians 3, 1-2. If then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things above. Where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God. And then he says this. Set your what? Set your minds on the things that are above, not on things that are on earth. In verse 16-17 through 17, he goes on. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. It's key. To keeping your mind set on Christ, letting the word of God dwell in you richly. And then he says this. Now, whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. Giving thanks to the God, to God the Father through him. We see the challenge again, finally, for number two. In 1 Peter chapter 1. Verse 13 through 15. And this challenge starts with the mind. Peter says, Therefore, preparing your minds for action preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that would be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as He who called you is holy, you also be holy in all of your conduct. What is He to say? Our minds are being renewed and they are preparing us for action. Before any of the action, before any of the thanksgiving and joy, before exposing the deeds, before being holy in our conduct, it first says, preparing your minds. Preparing our minds. Change of thinking. Don't be conformed to previous life. You're called to be holy, set apart from the world. And what does Peter say? In all of our conduct. This renewing of the mind and being set apart as holy is for every aspect of our life. And there's one final passage I want to bring up to bring home my point of number two. That a biblical worldview demands that we just simply see differently. We see as new believers. We see according to minds that are set on Christ. And you find this in Matthew 22, 36-40 from the mouth of Jesus. The Pharisees approached Jesus in Matthew 22. One of them was a lawyer. Asked Jesus a question to test him. He says, teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your what? mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Notice the order here. Jesus says, the greatest commandment, before you do anything else, you must love the Lord your God. In other words, no idols shall have no other gods before me. But Jesus shows us what it means to actually love God. It means that we are submitted to His Lordship with all of our heart, all of our emotions, all of our soul, all of our being, all of our spirituality, and all of our what? Mind. Our thinking and our seeing. It's not just emotion. It's not just spirituality. It's our thinking. This is part of the greatest commandment, that our thinking must be submitted to the Lordship of Christ. In other words, according to Jesus' words in Matthew 22, it's impossible, say impossible, Good morning. It's impossible to love God if you don't submit to Him with your mind. But continue the progression here. It is this love and submission and way of thinking that even allows for us to love our neighbors. This goes back to our first point tonight. If we don't abide in Him and His Word, we cannot have a biblical worldview that is engaged in our culture in a loving way which means that all of our work and energy and action and ministry, ministries spent in culture, spent in our family, spent in our community, when it's outside of abiding the word of God and outside of a renewing, a renewed mind that's submitted to him, it is not out of love for God. It's seeking maybe to build your own kingdom or make you feel better about yourself or make you feel better about the church or make you feel better about whatever, fill in the blank, but it may not be out of motive for the love of God and building his kingdom. And this is crucial. So a true biblical worldview demands that we abide in the word, that our minds are being renewed by the word. This was the longest part of the evening. Congratulations. We're downhill. Number three. A true biblical worldview demands that we expose the deeds of darkness. I think that a lot of Christians are really good having a biblical worldview with point one and two. But they get a little scared here. And they may be more grace. They may say, I'm just a compassionate person. I'm not outspoken. You're not going to find me on a corner trying to talk to somebody. You're not going to find me going up to my coworker who's living in serious sin and really kind of being vocal. I'm just going to kind of quietly pray from the corner. I'm not saying that that's wrong, but that's one mentality. Some people don't realize that to have a biblical worldview, it actually means that you've got to get engaged. But just like there's a tendency for a lot of people to abide and have a renewed mind but not go into action, there's a tendency for just as many to not abide and not have a renewed mind and jump right to exposing sin. And that's dangerous. That's that's not godly. Those tend to be impure motives. Those tend to be sometimes a, a prideful mentality of an approach to a worldview. I want you to notice our progression tonight. A biblical worldview does not start with exposing deeds of darkness. It starts with a personal delight in dwelling in God's word. Not so we can know how to fix the world, but so that we may personally be transformed, first and foremost. That we would delight in God and that our minds would be renewed, that we would be set apart as holy. Many so-called Christians just jump right into this. Exposed, you're wrong. So the Bible says you're an idiot. Why are you living like this? Why are you acting like that? You're wrong. You can't do this. But it is not loving or obedient to Christ to expose deeds of darkness when we ourselves are not abiding and delighting and being renewed in our minds or set apart. This is exactly what Jesus teaches and warns against in Matthew chapter seven, verse three through five, when He says, "Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye? You know it, but do not notice the what." Log that is in your own eye. How can you, Gavin, say to Brooke, let me take the speck out of your eye when there's a log in your own eye? You hypocrite, Gavin. Don't worry, she's a hypocrite too. So am I. First, take the log out of your own eye and then I love what Jesus says. He says, take the log. I love it. He says, take the log out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to take the speck out. In other words, Jesus saying, not only do you have the practice backwards, you're focusing on them before you're focusing on yourself, but you can't even see clearly because of the sin and the blockage in your own eyes. It's just as important for the person in Matthew 7 who is the audience of Christ, it's just as important for them to see clearly than it is to get their own sin and log into their own eye. Now Christians can be really good at justifying this passage away, judge not Yeah, but the Bible also says all these other places. And they'll quickly kind of not want to soften and humble themselves and let the word of God expose maybe sin in their own heart. But there's also another extreme with a passage like this, where you will run away and say, I can't expose that sin because I'm sinful. 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 And you kind of just hide in corners for the rest of your life. And what Jesus does not teach here is, is that you have to be perfect to expose sin. But rather that you must be being sanctified. There's a motive and a heart issue here that God was dealing with in the greater context of this passage. This passage reveals a needed humility and heart change before we go guns blazing in our culture. But we also need to remember that if we wait until we're perfect and sinless to expose darkness, we'll never get to expose darkness. And this is the gospel This is how God is glorified and using sinful man to reach sinful man. Part of the beauty is that I can go up to Andrew and be like, Hey, I love you enough as a brother to say, I'm seeing some areas where, man, I'm just concerned for your own sanctification, for your own joy. And believe me, I've got issues. This is not me coming to you like I'm better than you. I need you to pray for me as well, man. Let's do this together. How can we sharpen one another? This is is private. I'm not bringing Andrew in the front of the whole congregation going, this idiot is lying to everybody. But rather, I'm going privately saying, you're just exaggerating. And man, there's so much more joy that God has for you. I know because I'm an exaggerator. Let's help each other. This this is what it looks like to expose sin in your brothers and sisters. We'll get to what it looks like in a culture that's wicked here in a second. This is the gospel. I'm a sinful man that God's forgiven. You're a a sinful guy that God has forgiven. This is the gospel. Paul says he was the chief of sinners and yet was saved by God's grace. This was the encouragement to others that God could indeed forgive us. With the biblical worldview, when we talk about exposing the deeds of darkness, what we need to understand tonight is that means that we must expose the deeds of darkness in our own life first and throw ourselves at the mercy and grace of God. We must realize that we indeed do have a tendency to separate our understanding of theology from the way that we live and act and think and plan and spend money, etc. Like Paul David Tripp says, we do, if we're honest, a lot of us have two drawers, and we're supposed to have one. A biblical worldview demands that we not separate or compartmentalize areas of our life. The prayer there is, oh God, reveal to us the areas of our life that are being lived apart from a biblical worldview and apart from submission to you expose that sin by your grace, cover it with your blood, and lead us to a new way of thinking and seeing. Now, the work of exposing deeds of darkness, especially in a wicked culture, is serious. This is a lot of what we're going to be discussing in the weeks ahead. Ephesians 5 is where we see this exact wordage. Verse 1-6 through shows us that we're to be imitators of God. No longer living like the old self or the world, and then in verse seven, Paul says, "Do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. And if you remember John chapter three, light has come into the world, but men loved what? Darkness, because their deeds were evil. And here he's saying, now as a children of a child of God, being imitator of God, no longer don't don't be partners with these people. They are." In darkness, you were at once in darkness, but now you are in light. Your deeds have been exposed and thrown upon Christ on the cross and paid for. So walk as children of light and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Now this is important because we are indeed to distinguish ourselves from the world, which we see in the first part of verse 11 as well. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness. Darkness. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness. Do not be partners with them. However, many Christians again stop there and they live only in part A of this verse. We can become cultural monks. We can live in a practice of escapism. We run into caves and we cower and we scream that the sky is falling. We live in fear and we see that we must protect ourselves, our children from the world. So what we do is we build metaphorical fences and we keep a distance from the world. But this is not what Paul says. He says, yes, distinguish yourself, but don't remove yourself from the world. You have a purpose here. You have a ministry here. You are reconciled to God and now you are a minister of reconciliation. It's not you're reconciled to God, now go hide from the crazy world. It's you've been reconciled, now go and be a minister of reconciliation. As as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, you're an ambassador for Christ. God making His appeal through you. This cannot happen when you hide. So he finishes the verse by saying, Expose the deeds of darkness. The word expose here is not a dirty word. When you think of the word expose, you think of scandals that make the headlines, the newspapers, the uh, media, and it's all over Facebook, and you think of all kinds of scandals. This is uh, exposing in a shameful way, humiliating way, and a guilt filled way, but this is not the gospel, and that's not what this means. Our culture exposes that way, but the gospel does not, and Christians ought not to. The word here means to put to proof, to test, to convict. It actually, in this specific verse, means to reprove or rebuke. It's an act of discipline, the author of Hebrew tells us. It's actually, check this out, an act of love. All right, lock in. The problem with Christians today is that we don't expose sin for what I see to be. Three reasons. I'm sure there's more, but I want to highlight briefly three reasons of why Christians will typically not expose sin. You ready? You ready? Say yeah. Yeah. Cool, we're alive. Number one, one of the reasons that we may not be actively involved in exposing sin, we are often so concerned with the tact and how other people may be doing it wrongly that what we'd rather do is complain about how Christians are preaching the gospel or serving poorly, while we simply sit in the stands. You guys, uh, you guys have sports teams that you enjoy. Yeah, I- I'm a big Syracuse basketball fan. And Beth, I know that this is definitely not going to resonate with you because you know you don't care about sports or football or things like that. But let me let me give you an example. Right? We're all good. Hey, everybody. I know we're all good with that. Okay. Being taken care of. Now we can lock in. When I watch a Syracuse basketball game, what I do is I watch like a point guard, Tyus, battle when we're down six with like two minutes left. And you're like, Tyus, you're a driver, you're not a shooter first. So what we need is not to take tons of seconds off the shot clock and waste it and then to do some stupid step back, you know, 16 foot jumper that you're not gonna make. That's a 10% shot for you. Crash the lane, baby! Put a body on somebody, get a foul, or make a layup. And keep the minimum amount of time off the clock. I'm shouting this in my living room. Or I look at Jim Boeheim last weekend when we lost Notre Dame. We've got the ball. It's a tie game with 36 seconds left. And I'm going, call a timeout. Call a timeout. Call a timeout. We look flustered. Call a timeout. Take the possession. What happens? We don't call a timeout. Ty loses the ball. It's a breakaway layup with two seconds left, and we lose the game. Now, you want to know who the best coach and point guard is for Syracuse in that moment? Me in my living room. Me. If only you would have done this. If it was me, I would have done this. So, what happens is I have the best technique. I know the way it should be done, but all the while I'm sitting in the stands. I don't even have any skin in the game. And you want to know how many Christians act and live like this rather than getting engaged in the work? Rather than getting engaged in exposing sin and the deeds of darkness, what they do is they sit in their pews and they go, well, I wouldn't have done it that way. I can't believe that they're doing it this way. Have they ever thought of this? No, they haven't. Nobody asks me. (laughs) Let me go home and do 80 hours worth of entertainment. That's number one. Number two, one of the reasons we won't expose the sin and the deeds of darkness, we don't want our sin exposed. If I start exposing sin, is my sin going to get exposed? But this is where we forget the gospel. This is where we forget what Christ has done. This is where we don't realize that the exposing of sin is an act of grace, an act of mercy. And by the way, can I just pause as Christians and challenge you? One of the reasons people don't want their sins exposed is because we in this room are terrible with dealing with Christians when their sin is exposed. We shame them, we guilt them, we publicize them, we gossip, and we slander. Rather than going, you know what, Andrew? This was a sin that Christ knew about when he died for you on the cross. And if you confess your sin, he's faithful and just to forgive you your sin and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. And you want to know what? I'm not going to sit here and gossip and slander you because I've had all kinds of sin exposed and covered by the grace of God. Therefore, let me remind you of the grace and love and mercy found in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Your sin has been exposed. Praise God. Now you can repent and be sanctified and be made right. Let's move, baby. Christians should be loving when sin is exposed. Not going, did you hear what happened with Jake? Just came out in the news yesterday. He's been smoking pot. And that is not the gospel. That is not the gospel. And that is why we often will not be actively involved in exposing the deeds of sin. And there's a final one. This is a big one. This is one of the biggest ones for me. We don't want to give up our comfortable Christianity. Side note, I told you this really is a four-week sermon series, right? So, I know. We don't actively expose the deeds of darkness because we don't want to give up our comfortable Christianity. Let me, let, me, let me tell you what I mean by this. Because this has especially been seen for me in the work of exposing abortion. Many of you guys know that I've been involved at Planned Parenthood pleading with women to not have an abortion. Just so you know, um, I've gotten all kinds of opinions from people. People on the sidelines... People maybe not on the sidelines, um, people who have an assumption of what I am doing that maybe I'm not doing, or think that I'm doing something that I'm or not doing something I should be doing, when I may be doing it. There's all kinds of like these thoughts. But above all of that, let me tell you what typically happens on a Friday when you go and you plead with women not to have an abortion. I'm viewed as the evil one. I'm viewed as the unloving, untactful one. When I'm holding a sign that says, I care about you and your child. I can help you keep your baby. Me and my wife will go in our own pocket and give you resources. I've got friends who will adopt. If it means that your baby's going to be saved, my wife and I will adopt. You need a place to stay. You can come live in our guest room. I'll give you rides. We'll give you free health care. You need clothes and food? I'll take care of it. You need a job? I've got somebody who's willing to hire you on the side. But I'm the evil one. What also happens is, And many of you know this who have been out there. You're cussed up one side and back down the other. You're threatened with people spitting your face saying they're going to put you in the hospital, which is a quarter of a mile down the way. You're put on video because people are saying that you're slandering and and hating on people and casting insults. The cops are called on you. You're threatened to be taken to prison if you don't act quieter and and make sure you're not going on the property. Let me ask you a question. Do you think on Thursday nights when I'm getting ready... To wake up early in the morning to go to Planned Parenthood that I'm excited? Do you think that I don't think in my head and my flesh, Dave, just stay home. Just stay home. Just stay home. Other people can do this. There'll be other people there. It's fine. You don't need to do it. Just stay home. And I lose sleep. I cry. (laughs) It sucks. You want to know why? Because it's evil. It's evil. And here's what, ha- here's what happens. If I were to sit here right now and explain to you graphically the ins and outs of what happens during a D and E abortion, and I were to put on the video a five minute video of what takes place during an abortion, what would happen is you would probably all be in tears right now. And then if I were to show you a 10-minute video of the evil people in the world who say that this is morally right, and they start saying things like, I'm an idiot, I'm stupid, what I'm doing is crazy and evil, and they start defending this high uh, work of women's rights and protecting women's health, all that kind of stuff, we would probably start to get even more sick in our stomach. And when you see how some people just come out and you wonder if they're even demon-possessed, you hear some things they are saying, it eats at you. And you want to know why we don't want to watch those types of videos? You want to know why we don't like to see dismembered babies on posters? You want to know why? It changes the way you eat and you want to enjoy your meal. It changes the way you watch television. You want to have leisure and, 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 and just be able to enjoy it. It changes the way you sleep. You'll probably lose sleep. It probably makes you sick your stomach and you don't want to deal with that. The reality is, is we often care more about tactic and how we expose the deeds of darkness but the reality is if we're honest what we care most about is don't make me accountable to something I don't want to be accountable to. Don't let me see the depths and deep darkness of the evil and sin taking place because I want to enjoy my life. And if I see this, it's going to break my heart and it's going to call me to action. I'm going to feel some kind of guilt in my Christian life and have to do something. And so we are intentional by keeping ourselves away from exposing the deeds of darkness because then things get real. You want to know what gets real? You want to know i thought too? I've thought all three of these. I thought, Dave... And you're 10 years here, you've made unbelievable mistakes and you've sinned a lot. And people know about your sin. And you think you're so high and holy and you're on the street corner playing parenthood. You don't think that somebody's gonna see you and blast on Facebook all your deepest, darkest secrets? What about when you become senior pastor? And somebody comes to your church and goes, Dave Aubrey, and they remember 10 years ago, and all of a sudden there's this big thing. You know what this causes the flush of Dave Aubrey to do, want, want to do sometimes? It's not worth it. Not worth it. Abby, let's move. Let's move somewhere nobody knows us. Let's not be pastor. There's too much responsibility. Let's not go to Planned Parenthood on Fridays. I don't want it. Just give me a comfy, quiet home. Let us do our thing. Thank God I'm saved. I'll go to heaven when I die. And that is selfish. And that is not a biblical worldview. The Bible calls us to expose the deeds of darkness. And if you stop at just the word of God, I'll go to church, but don't make me get involved. You're lying to yourselves. And what happens is people will say things like, I'm just not called that ministry. And you may not be, but before you make that total judgment call, would you do me a favor? Would you look in the mirror and say, what am I really saying? Is there just actually something that I'm not willing to give up? Am I wanting to be in control of something in my life? Am I, not, am I not wanting to be uncomfortable maybe with something? What, what am I really saying? And check your motivations. Finally, with the exposing, and I, I know I've got to finish. You guys have been so gracious. I want to remind you two things about exposing sin. Number one, exposing sin is the most loving thing you could do. And let me tell you why. Number one, because there will be a day where all deeds will be exposed. Every single one of them. Hebrews 4.13, no creature is hidden from his sight. All are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Second Peter 3.10, the day of the Lord will come like a thief and then the heavens will pass away with a roar. And the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. And the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. So Isaiah the prophet says in chapter 55 to the people of Israel. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the the wicked forsake their way. And the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord. That God may have compassion on him. For he will abundantly pardon. If you think. That it's okay for people to hide and keep sin hidden now. You should know there is coming a day where it will be exposed. And if we don't allow for it to be exposed and it's not exposed, while there's time to repent, it will be too late. And the exposed sin will throw you into an eternity of hell where you will live in separation under God's wrath for all of eternity. But if your sin is exposed by God's grace and mercy and you come to repentance and you realize this is an act of God's grace and you confess your sin and you repent and you turn and you run after Christ with every fiber of your being, your sin will be covered by the blood of the Lamb and you will spend an eternity feasting on the presence of God and His joy. Praise God! And this is what Hebrews chapter 12 says, beginning in verse 5. It says, My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. The word reproved, same word as exposed in Ephesians 5. Expose the deeds of darkness. Nor be weary when reproved by him, when you are exposed. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. What son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you're left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Did you catch that? If your sin is not exposed and you are not disciplined by the Lord, then you are illegitimate and not sons. So we take this for ourselves and we take this into ministry. That exposing and discipline our loving words. Listen to me. Don't let culture steal those words. Those are acts of love. But we do it speaking the truth in love and correcting our opponents with gentleness. Looking to exhort and edify our brothers and sisters. And we don't go with this pride that we're better and you're filthy and disgusting. But we go with, I am filthy and disgusting and I've been cleansed by the blood of Christ. Come with me. I'll take you to the well myself. Finally, number four, just to conclude. A true biblical worldview requires that we preach the gospel. God's wrath is coming upon all who do not repent. So when we talk about exposing deeds of darkness, we don't run and expose deeds in a way that people feel judged and hopeless. We don't go to an abortion clinic and say, you're murderers, you're killing your babies, and then deuces. We don't walk up to a person living in homosexuality or a person addicted to pornography or a person who's engaged in adultery or a person who's a glutton or a person who has got massive substance abuse. We don't walk up and say sin, 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 sin. Better repent. No! We go in such a way that we preach the gospel. This is the fruition, this is the full portion of a biblical worldview. A biblical worldview means that you abide in the word of God, your mind is renewed, your sins being exposed, you're actively exposing the sin in the culture and you're doing so in a way that you're pointing them to the cross of Christ so that people will be transformed. You remind people that we have a creator who has determined what is right and wrong, who's sovereign over all things, who's in control of all things. You remind them that sin entered the world and sin must be paid for because no one is righteous, no, not one, no one seeks after God, no one can be saved apart from the work of Christ. God knew this, planned this from eternity for his glory to be revealed, sent his son at the fullness of time who lived the perfect life, fulfilled the law and the prophets, died on the cross, was accursed, bore our wrath, or the wrath of God that we deserved. rose from the dead, death did not defeat, him. Satan did not defeat him. Today, he's sitting at the right hand of God, ruling and reigning. And before he left, he said, all authority has been given to me. I'm the authority. Therefore, go make disciples with your biblical worldview, baptizing them of all nations, teaching them to observe or obey all that I have commanded. A biblical worldview must not end with abiding the word of God, must not end with a renewed mind, must not end with exposing your sin, must not end with exposing the world's sin, but must end with preaching the gospel and praying that God would open eyes. We must remember, in the context of all this, as we engage on 21 weeks of crazy stuff happening in our world, And as we will identify and give you examples of the seriousness of all these subjects and what is happening in the world, we will probably be appalled by a lot of it. And here's what's crazy. The Bible tells us in the midst of all of this, we have no reason to fear. We have no reason to have anxiety or to worry or to lose hope. Even if suffering and persecution comes our way. We are fulfilling the purpose that our creator has given to us. We're living with the biblical worldview. We're making disciples of all nations, ambassadors for Christ. We're exposing our sin. We're being sanctified. We're exposing the sin of this world. We're acting and living a way that even the things that we eat and drink are bringing glory to God. Therefore, I'm in my jar of clay, my earthly tent. To live is Christ, to die is gain. What can man do to me? I finish with a couple questions. Are you confident? Do you live with hope? Would you consider yourself to be a joyful person? Are you exposing deeds of darkness in your own life or actively engaged in doing so in your community? Are you preaching the gospel to yourself and to others? And if not, I would ask you do you truly have a biblical worldview?